Welcome to the Grove Summer Edition. You know, we thought that, you know, kind of in the casual nature of summer, we would preach a series for the next eight weeks on virtues and vices. That feels appropriate to talk about the seven deadly sins for the next seven weeks. Something lighthearted for everybody. So I'm glad you're here today. Some of you are like, oh, this is worse when they talk about money. But uh, it was funny as we sent out kind of our weekly newsletter to let you know what we were going to be talking about and we kind of give you updates on what's happening at the church. Uh, I got an unusually high number of I am out on vacation all summer. So sorry to miss this series. But uh, I'm excited that we're actually going to be talking about it. And we're going to be talking about it for a while. And the reason that we're talking about it for a while, and, and I can already anticipate a little bit of the uneasiness, is because for many of us, when there's ever been a conversation around like a vice or a sin in church, it's often felt like they've kind of used it like a baseball bat to kind of like beat you and whack you into submission. It's kind of like this tool to kind of like force you to submit. That's not how we're going to use this series, and that's not how we're going to frame up this conversation. But rather... An, Maybe this is only applies to kind of half the audience here, but you know those like triple magnification mirrors or those like 8x magnification mirrors? Have you ever had one of those? Like when you look in a normal mirror, you're like, hey, it looks pretty good. And then you flip on like the extra magnification, you're like, oh, dear Lord. And you kind of like step back a little bit. My hope will be that this series actually functions like one of those like enhanced magnification mirrors because really... This conversation for the next eight weeks is really a conversation about self-examination. It's a conversation about looking at ourselves in honesty and in true accountability about the patterns and the habits that we live, the ways that we engage in certain actions or kind of a pattern of actions, and the type of people that we are and the type of people that we want to become. I was having a conversation with somebody the other day, and they're like, Stephen, okay, just make it simple for me. What is, what is being a Christian, like, all about? If you could just, like, boil it down into one idea, like, what's the goal? And I said, okay, painting broad strokes, the goal of the Christian life, the goal of being a Christian is to live like Jesus. And they're like, that feels really daunting and overwhelming. Like, could you, I'm like, well... That's really it. It's to, it's to live like Jesus lived. It's to act like he acted. It's to think in the patterns that he thought. It's to kind of feel about things and people in the world in the way, same way that Jesus did. It's really what we're talking about is how do we pattern our lives after Jesus. And as I've dug into it and as Allie and I have kind of researched this and had conversations about it, I'm not sure that there's a better tool to help us really identify how we stop engaging in certain habits and patterns of behavior and picking up other habits and patterns of behavior to become more like Jesus than looking at vices and virtues. Now, kind of because of contemporary treatment of this word vice or the seven deadly sins or maybe movies or TV shows that you've seen related to it, I think it's probably helpful that we kind of define the terms that we're going to be using for the next several, several weeks. So, at its core, at its kind of heart, this is what a vice or a virtue is. They have the same definition, just different orientations, okay? This is what a vice or a virtue is. It's a habit. It's a pattern of action. It's a character trait. So this is easily identifiable. Think about somebody who would possess the virtue of courage. Well, how do you know that they are a courageous person? Because they have demonstrated consistently 
repeatedly over a period of time to act in manners and in situations where they had to be courageous. They found themselves an opportunity to demonstrate courage when they didn't have to or when it was difficult to, but they demonstrated by acting out the virtue of courage. You do this enough over a period of time, and you start to form your own character towards being a courageous person. The same way, think about it in a different way. Think about somebody who you would identify in your own life as an envious person. Well, that's a vice, as we'll define later. Well, how do you know that they're an envious person? Well, it's because time and time again, they've demonstrated through their actions, through patterns of behavior, that they have demonstrated actions and ways that demonstrate envy. It's uh, no different than maybe like a path that you've seen, like if you've ever been hiking or if you've been kind of walking somewhere and you see like this well-worn path and you're like, I wonder how this got here. Well, you know, really, maybe you don't wonder, but it's really simple how the path gets there. Somebody at the very first time walked somewhere that there wasn't a path. They started to trample down the grass or the leaves or whatever it is. And then that pattern got repeated over and over and over again. Well, what happens, though, with these vices and virtues, these habits, these ways of operating, kind of, they become these character traits that are self-reinforcing. In the same way that somebody walking and creating a trail creates an opportunity for other people to follow in that trail, which further reinforces the fact that it's a trail, and more and more people, and now, like, it's just that's where people go. It would be harder to choose a different path because the trail is already there. The same thing happens in our own life. When we demonstrate these vices or these virtues, these habits in our own life, we are creating these well-worn grooves that increase the likelihood that we'll act in consistent manners in the future. So this is what happens and why habits, um, our vices and virtues are such an important conversation in the ways that we are trying to live in the example of Christ. The actions that you participate in, the things that you do, lead to and form who you are, which then informs the actions and the habits that you do. That's why we talk about virtuous or vicious cycles. This is the way that we act and operate in the world. When you engage in virtuous behavior, when you do things that are virtuous, it informs the type of person that you are. It helps you build excellent moral character, which then reinforms and informs the actions that you do consistently. You create these well-worn paths and grooves in your own life. The same is true in these vicious cycles. We all know this. We start to get into these patterns, these habits of thought or action of behavior. We do them. They inform who we are, but then reinforms what we choose to do. We're like, ah, oh, I just can't break this habit because we have become a person who does these things consistently over time. And around and around we go. And so the goal of this series is really to kind of flip on that extra magnification and to look at what cycles, what patterns are we engaged in in our own life? What habits have been formed that have developed into either vices or virtues? And so for the next summer, what we're going to do is look at the seven different vices that have kind of emerged throughout the course of kind of Christian thought and, and tradition and look at kind of their corresponding virtues to kind of unpack and examine the ways that these habits and patterns might exist in our own life. But it's not just to identify them in our own life, but it's, okay, if this is the ways that we might be engaging in these kind of patterns and habits of vice, 
What does it look like to move towards these virtues? And what are the spiritual disciplines that actually help us to do this? Because it's not going to be helpful if the end of the eight weeks that you leave and you go home and you have a list of seven vices and seven virtues and you don't know how to navigate the gap. The goal is to give you tools to help you navigate the gap from any of the vices that you experience and encounter in your own life, how you move away from those, how you cut yourself off from the ways that they ensnare and entangle you in your own life and start to build new habits through spiritual disciplines that are patterned after the example of Christ. And really, that's the goal of the Christian life, is to continue this process over and over and over again of identifying the ways that we're not living after the pattern of Christ and reshaping and reforming our habits, our actions, our thoughts towards the example of Christ. I mean, it's what we prayed in this prayer of confession. We haven't lived according to your will in thought, word, or deed. We haven't loved you with our whole heart. The things that we have done, the things that we have left undone. We pray these prayers because this is the overarching theme of this spiritual journey that we talk about. This is what Christian discipleship looks like, is living after the example of Christ. Now, this definition of vice or virtue is this habit, this pattern of behavior. This is not a Christian idea. It actually comes from Aristotle and from Greek philosophy that over time was recognized by early Christian thinkers as a pretty helpful way to think about the ways that we form ourselves according to the person of Christ. They're like, oh, if the goal is spiritual formation after the person of Christ, this language and this kind of thought process is a really helpful framework for how we think about Christian discipleship and spiritual formation. And so what happened in the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries is there were kind of a group of Christian thinkers who kind of moved out to the desert, these kind of Christian ascetics. They kind of denounced all of their possessions, and they began to live out this kind of monastic lifestyle, and they spent a lot of time paying attention to the habits, the patterns that tried to emerge in their life. And they developed this really robust catalog of all of the different types of vices that kind of human nature inclines us towards. And then over time, that list kind of got massaged and adjusted and people argued over it and you can go back and not everybody has the same list of of vices, but this is the list that we're going to be working with for the next eight weeks and this is the one that kind of stands throughout the course of Christian tradition. Gluttony, sloth, wrath, envy, lust, greed, and vainglory. And vainglory, if you're like, what is that one? It's like a cousin to pride. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. But these, in some shape or form, are the seven. Now, they're often referred to as the seven deadly sins, but for the conversation for the next eight weeks, we're going to call them vices. Because actually, what we'll show a little bit later is sin doesn't capture the pattern of behavior the habitual nature that these things play in our life in the same way that the word vice does. And so we're going to kind of let go of seven deadly sins, and we're going to focus on this concept of these seven virtues and these seven vices. Okay, so what happened is after we identified this list of seven is we started to recognize the effects that they had in our life. And the reason that these are so deadly, so destructive in our own life is because they allow and they lead human nature to pursue good things 
in a way that is outside of kind of the will of God. They end up being shortcuts for kind of self-fulfillment and for the pursuit of happiness in ways that fall outside of the nature of how God has intended things. And what we see as you look into those, each one of those is kind of a disproportionate, a disordered approach to pursuing happiness and self-fulfillment. You take gluttony. It's good to eat food, to provide nourishment. Gluttony is that pursuit in an extreme measure. The same with sloth. Sloth is the avoidance of things that are hard. It's not just laziness. Actually, as we'll talk about sloth later in, in the upcoming weeks, uh, when you like numb out on social media, that counts as sloth. Yep, you didn't know that. You're going to miss that week, aren't you? Uh-huh. But it's ways that we do things, patterns and actions that we engage in, but in an extreme measure. And so what happened over time is Christian thinkers, they begin to recognize the prevalence of these ideas and these vices at work in the human heart. Now, and really kind of what it boils down to is there's shortcuts. There are these grooves, these paths that we have developed for self-made satisfaction. It's all about our attempt to gain pleasure and fulfillment on our own apart from God. And this is why it's such a big deal. Because this is contrary to the nature and the way that God intended things to work. And if we look at kind of the origin story of humanity in the book of Genesis, we see the same pattern playing out. And let me show you what happened. Now, this is in Genesis 3. And you might be familiar with this story. There's a couple things I want to point out to it. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say to you, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And already, here we start to have this dynamic of we're second-guessing the way that God has ordered the world. The laws, the rules, kind of the dynamic that God has set in place. We're starting to see a little bit of doubt and a, a, a disbelief in God's providence and God's will and design enter into the equation. Now, what happens next is the woman says to the serpent, it says, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or, shall, or you shall die. The woman's like, here's what God said. These are the rules. This is the way that God designed things and ordered things in this world. But the serpent says to the woman, you won't die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And this is really the heart of where all of the vices come from. It's the desire on our own pursuit to be like God. Instead of following in the order of the things, of the way that God has ordered the world, we start to pursue this on our own. We start to take for ourselves what we want instead of following God's plan. We desire to be like God. This is what happens next. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Now, look at that line. It was a delight to the eyes. She saw something she wanted and it was desired to make her wise, to allow her, she found an opportunity to shortcut self-fulfillment. She found this pathway that she could navigate to gain what it was that she wanted. It's like that song, I saw it, I want it, I got it. 
We celebrate this in our own lives. We sing it. It's like, I saw it. I want it. I got it. But it's right out of Genesis. It's right out of the original kind of way that we make a mistake. Some of you are like, I have no idea what he's talking about. Ask somebody younger than you later after the service is over. This is what happens. This is kind of what we call the original sin. And there's a name for this. Kind of the early church thinkers and writers, they would call this pride. And really, when you kind of unpack this definition of pride, it's self-love. It's an orientation of the world towards yourself. There's a Latin phrase that means a curving of the world around yourself. This is what pride does. It's not pride typically in the way that we think of pride. That'll actually probably better fall under the category of vainglory that we'll get to in an upcoming week. But this version of pride really is best described and defined by self-love. We put ourselves first over and above God's order, God's will, and its impact on those around us. Sometimes even on its impact upon ourselves. We curve the world in around ourselves because it's a delight to the eyes and it's desired to make us more like God. Well, we take measures into our own hands. We take control of life. We don't wait. We're impatient. We say, no, I can have what I want now because if I can get what I want now, I'll be happier than if I follow according to God's plan, God's will, God's timing. Now, when you think about those seven deadly sins or the seven vices that we talked about earlier, think about each one through this lens and orientation of self-love. Gluttony is an extreme and abundance of self-love as it relates to food or to consumption of something. Greed is an extreme version of self-love as it relates to possessions and material wealth. I care more about consuming that for myself than I do the impact on my family, on those people around me, upon my relationship with God. Each of those seven vices you can look through and look at through the lens of kind of a disordered self-love. Now, kind of written in the 6th century, St. Gregory was kind of an early Christian monastic and ascetic. He eventually becomes pope, but he writes about how pride is kind of the chief of all of the vices. Every vice stems and flows through pride. Later in his writing, what he describes is if you were to imagine a tree, at the trunk of the tree, this big part of the tree would be pride. And then you see these seven branches of these seven vices kind of branching off from and shooting out from this trunk of pride. And then all of the leaves and the fruit on this tree, those would be all of the man- manner of sin that we're kind of familiar with. It's the actions, it's the thought, word, and deed that flow out of and follow from these different vices which stem from this trunk. This is how he puts it. He says, For tempting vices which fight against us in an invisible contest, on behalf of pride which reigns over them, some of them go first like captains. Others follow after the manner of an army. So here's one word picture in kind of this kind of battle, this cosmic battle for kind of our life. They all follow the lead of the general of pride. They follow after like captains. For when pride, the queen of sins, has fully possessed a conquered heart, she surrenders it immediately to seven principal vices, as if to some of her generals to lay it waste. The first thing that happens anytime we're in the grip of any vice, the first thing that happens is we have some disordering 
some imbalance in our own self-love and relationship to God, self, and others, which leads us to pursuing something, to seeing something that's a delight to the eyes and desiring it in a disordered way. There's some imbalance. There's some kind of corruption in our pursuit of these things in our life. And he ends and he says, For pride is the root of all evil. But seven principal vices, as its first progeny, no doubt spring from this poisonous root. Namely, vainglory, envy, wrath, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust. This is the problem and dynamic that we wrestle with from the very beginning of humanity. We love ourselves more than we love anything else. It doesn't always manifest in kind of, kind of 21st century language of self-love or self-interest or pride. But at the heart of all of the vices that we're going to encounter over the next seven weeks, this is at the core. And so as we think about kind of these corresponding vices and virtues, if a vice is a habit, a pattern of behavior, and a virtue is kind of its opposing habit or pattern, as it relates to a disordered self-love, what would be the antithesis of that? Well, in the New Testament, we have Paul who writes frequently about kind of the goal and the project of the Christian life. He says it's to die to self. If you were here for our last series, How to Live a Better Story, it's kind of the final kind of week of that series when it talks about what it is that we're called to do, this final action that we're called to as Christians. It's the same idea. The goal is to die to self. If the disease is self-love, the cure is to surrender yourself, is to die to self, die to your desires to pursue in an inordinate way those things that are delight to your eyes in the way that they were in the original story of humanity. Now, Paul wrote about this frequently, but I want to look at one passage that he writes to the church in Ephesus. And this is what he says in Ephesians 4 about this idea, this goal of kind of the Christian project to die to self and to rebuild yourself after the pattern and the example of Christ. This is what he says. He says, so I'm telling you this, and I insist on it in the Lord. You shouldn't live your life like the Gentiles anymore. That's just kind of a broad category for the unreligious, the people who aren't trying to live after the example of Christ. And that's the simplest way to understand that. He says, you shouldn't live your life like the Gentiles anymore. They engage in habits and patterns of behavior that lead them towards vices. And you as Christians are called towards something different. He says, they base their lives on pointless thinking. And they are in the dark in their reasoning. They don't understand how all of this works in our life, which is why we're going to talk about it for the next seven weeks so that we can better understand what this looks like, how to identify it, and then how to move from vice to virtue. He says they are disconnected from God's life because of their ignorance and their closed heart. That's it. They're not able to participate in this Christian virtuous life because they don't understand and because their hearts are closed to the way that God lives and calls them to live. It's a self-love that's disordered and has cut them off from any opportunity to live in the example that God calls them. He says, They are people who lack all sense of right and wrong and who have turned themselves over to doing whatever feels good and to practicing every sort of corruption. I saw it. I want it. I got it. This is the pattern that they're engaged in. 
They do what they want, not what God's called them to. Over and over and over again. And that path has become a well-worn groove in their life. And so they are caught in this pattern of habit. They are caught in this pattern of vice. And he says, this is not the way that you've learned from Christ. Since you really listened to him and you were taught how the truth is in Jesus. Kind of a little bit of like extra guilt there. Because you were really listening when you were taught all this. Here's what you're supposed to do. Change the former way of life that was part of the person you once were. Corrupted by deceitful desires. There's a movement that Paul is calling us to as followers. From vice to virtue. From an old pattern of habit and action to a new pattern of habit and action. From an old way of life to a new way of life. Instead, renew the thinking in your mind by the Spirit and clothe yourselves with the new person created according to God's image in justice and true holiness. In the Christian tradition, there's this pattern of dying and being reborn. Jesus demonstrates it and invites us to follow the same pattern in our own life. We, through the context of spiritual transformation and spiritual formation, are called to undergo the same pattern in our life. This is the language of repentance, of renewal, and of rebirth. We're called to identify the ways that we get it wrong, that we don't love God with our whole heart for the things that we've done and for the things that we've left undone to confess those things, to acknowledge the old habits that exist and to begin to move and pursue new habits through spiritual disciplines that form us into the person of Christ. But this sermon can't end on an encouragement to avoid pride and to pursue spiritual excellence on your own. That would be faulty thinking because the goal of this series isn't to encourage you to try harder because that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is not to dig your heels in, to white-knuckle it, and just to try a little bit harder. It's not the message. The message of the gospel is that you can't do this on your own. If you could, you would have already. But we can't. This is where we invite Christ in to help us. This is why we call it grace. We believe this is a work that God does in us and through us beyond our own ability. Another language for this process of transformation in our own spiritual journey is sanctification. It's the work of grace inside of us. This gift of God through the Holy Spirit helping us let go of habits and patterns of vices and to pursue and to construct and to build new habits that are made in the example of Christ. And as you'll look, as we'll explore these virtues in more detail, we have identified moral characters characteristics born out of the person of Jesus because that's the goal to become more like him this is the whole goal of the series to help us identify these patterns of vice in our life to recognize to confess to admit the ways that we need God to move and to work in us and to help us to pursue these different patterns these patterns of virtue in our life and doing so it does transform our heart. Because if you remember that cycle and that circle from doing to being, as we let go of one course of action, as we stop doing certain things, it informs and affects who we are. 
And as we pursue a different way of acting, a different way of living, a different pattern of habit, it will reform us into the person of Christ. And so that's my hope and prayer for us over the next seven weeks, that we would begin to be willing to stand in front of that mirror on enhanced magnification, to look at the parts of our lives that are uglier than we wish, the parts that feel a little uncomfortable to name and admit, to hold up into the light, the parts of ourselves that we want to hide, the parts of ourselves that we don't want anybody else to know about, and to offer them up to God and say, God, I need you to do something with this. I'm willing to play a role, but God, I know it's not just through me. In the second, we're going to sing a song, and kind of the whole phrase in this song is, yet not I, but Christ in me. That's, that's the goal of this series, to recognize the ways that we need more of Christ and less of ourselves. Let me pray for us, and we'll bring the band out to lead us in one last song. Gracious God, as we begin this process of self-examination, as we begin to confront and admit and confess to the ways that we don't love you with our whole heart, that we love ourselves more than we should, God, we invite you to begin a work in each one of us, to transform us from the inside out and to reform us into the person of your son. God, Give us the encouragement to continue to do this work, to continue to show up week after week, to have these hard conversations, and to leave transformed. We pray this in your name. Amen.